uh, or Luke 11, 1 through 13, I will pray and then read uh, the text. Let's pray together. Luke 11, starting in verse 1. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Amen. You may be seated. So prayer. Prayer is one of the most basic necessities of the Christian life. It is to our souls what food and water are to our bodies. It's that vital to us. Prayer is what keeps our spiritual EKGs from flatlining, so to speak. And yet, prayer is often an area where we struggle and need great help and reminders. We often don't know what to pray. We often don't know what to feel when approaching God, or we feel unworthy for all sorts of reasons. And if we do get around to praying, we often don't really know what it will do in the end, whether God will really answer us, whether anything will really come of it. And so, for all manner of reasons, we need continually to remind ourselves again what the Lord has taught us regarding prayer. And here in Luke 11, we get some of the ABCs of prayer, and we're going to get three things. We're going to get the what of prayer, the how of prayer, and the promise of prayer. What should we be praying? How should we be praying it? How should we approach God? And what does God actually promise us when we do approach Him? So firstly then, the first point, the what of prayer. What should be the content and pattern of prayer? 
And in answer to that question, we have here in verses 2 through 4, we have a paraphrased version of the Lord's Prayer. Matthew records a, the full version, if you will, or a longer version of the prayer anyways. And that's the one we're familiar with. That's the one we're used to reciting. And what's probably happening in these two texts is in Matthew, Jesus is on a mountain. His disciples have gathered, but also a large crowd has gathered around, and he's teaching on all manner of things. And he teaches them to pray. He says, pray this prayer. And then later, at a different point in time, his disciples, they see him praying, and they come to him privately and actually ask him explicitly, Lord, teach us to pray. And in essence, he gives them the same prayer. He, he basically paraphrases what he had given the whole crowd and says, this is the prayer. This is the prayer of the Christian life. And so on the one hand, it's not so much the exact wording that matters. There's no magic formula when it comes to prayer. There's no magic wand, right? We can't strong-arm God and make him do what we want through any particular words. And yet, on the other hand, this prayer is given to us. This is the only prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples. This prayer is given to us as a sort of pattern, a definitive pattern of sorts to model our prayers after. And of course, it's not the only prayer that we can model our prayers after. We have the Psalms, we have Paul's prayers, but in a special way, this prayer is the golden standard for Christians, if you will. And uh, as a side note, many historic catechisms actually spend time devoted just to unpacking the Lord's Prayer. The church down through the ages has seen this as the definitive teaching on prayer. So, uh, this prayer, which we'll unpack just a moment, in just a moment, there are five particular requests. Matthew's version records seven, uh, but really there are two main parts or halves to this prayer. Firstly, Lord, would your kingdom come? And secondly, would you sustain us until it does? Lord, would your kingdom come and would you sustain us until it does? So let's unpack these two parts. The first part is captured in verse 2. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Father, that's where this prayer begins. And it would have dumbfounded Jesus' disciples. Before anything else, Jesus tells them to address God as Father. God is the creator of all that is. The eternal one, the infinite one, who dwells in unapproachable light. And yet Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. Fathers are those who provide comfort and security, provision and protection. Fathers, good fathers, provide love. And Jesus says, when you pray, say, Father. And he's uniquely able to invite us into that intimacy with the Father because of who he is. Uh, he is the unique Son of God who has come to draw near to us. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And not only is Jesus God who first comes to us, but Jesus 
again, is the Son of God, as the Apostle John puts it, the only Son from the Father. And so as the unique Son of God, He is truly able to invite us into that intimacy with the Father. If you have Jesus, you have the Father as your Father. So what about this prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come? Well, hallow is is sort of an old English word. To hallow someone's name means to honor or to revere them, to attribute great worth and value to that person. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are simply praying that mankind, that we ourselves, but that all the world might recognize God for who he is and might worship him and obey him. And actually, this is in large part what it means for God's kingdom to come, except the language of kingdom, of course, is a little bit more concrete. For God's kingdom to come is actually for God himself to come and to reign as king. Your kingdom come is most simply a prayer for Christ's actual return. But it's also a prayer that Christ would show up as king in certain ways in the here and now, both in our own lives that his rule and reign would extend over us, that we would learn to obey him and give every dominion or every area of dominion in our lives back to the Lord Jesus, but also that the gospel would go forth. It's a prayer that more people might turn to Jesus in faith and serve him as their Lord. So that's the first part of this prayer here in Luke 11, that God might magnify his name by coming in all his might and power, by coming with his kingdom, both now and as the gospel goes forth, and yet one day in all its fullness. The second part of this prayer is about God sustaining us in the here and now, sustaining us until his kingdom does come in full. Jesus continues, and we're in verse 3 now, give us each day our daily bread. This prayer is about our daily needs being met, and specifically those tangible and concrete needs. Lord, just as you gave the Israelites daily manna in the wilderness, would you sustain us day by day? And bread here is representative of our most basic human needs. This isn't about the job promotion, the new car, or the pay raise. This is about God's daily sustenance. So that's the physical provision, the bread. We're talking about God sustaining us in the here and now until his kingdom comes. That's the physical. And then in verse 4, we get to the request for spiritual provision. And again, Jesus continues, And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And there's a twofold request here, and that's for God to forgive us of our past sins, but also to guard us from wrongdoing in the future. And you'll notice that this prayer that God might forgive us, it assumes something, and it assumes that our lives are characterized by forgiving others, which is only true for those who've realized how much they need the forgiveness of God. And this last request, lead us not into temptation. This is the spiritual protection to not continue in wrongdoing against God and against our neighbor in the future. Lord, protect me. 
when I have a long day at work and I'm tempted to be impatient with my spouse or my children, when I'm upset with that coworker and I'm tempted to gossip about him, when I see what someone else has and I'm tempted to covet and grow discontent, God, in those moments, give me strength to remain faithful to you. So perhaps you've seen it by now, this prayer, which again we call the Lord's Prayer, is primarily about spiritual realities. Father, let your kingdom come, and would you sustain us until it does. And so this, this prayer can be a challenging prayer, because what it does is it actually calls us to reorder the desires of our hearts, because that's what prayer is. It's just giving expression to those things we count most dear. Prayer is naming what we want most. And so this prayer helps us. I think it's easy to come to the Lord with, with uh, our daily laundry list of needs, our daily laundry list of wants. Lord, remove this discomfort. Change this part of my life. And it's easy for our prayers to be very uh, navel-gazing. And Lord, do change my circumstances. Do something different for me. And we see here that the pattern starts by looking to God, by understanding who He is, and asking that the world might come to see just that, who He is, and that He would simply help us remain faithful. That's what Jesus tells His disciples to pray. So that's the what of prayer. It's this prayer here in Luke 11. Now, what about the how? How should we approach God? How should we pray? What sort of attitude or disposition should we have when we pray? Now, after giving them the prayer we just looked at, Jesus outlines this hypothetical situation for his disciples. He says, imagine a friend of yours shows up, he's been on a long journey, shows up at midnight, and you have nothing to give to him. Right? And in this day, there were no 7-Elevens or nearby Starbucks, so this friend is very hungry. He needs food and provision. There's something of an urgency to it. And so you go to your friend, because you lack something to give him, and you say, friend, give me, a friend of mine has showed up. Give me something to give him. But it's so late, and so your friend basically says, don't bother me. I've shut the door, and in case you didn't notice, we're all in bed already. Basically, try back another time. Then Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. Now, impudence or impudent, this is uh, another sort of outdated word. Merriam-Webster has this definition. Impudence, marked by contemptuous or cocky boldness, or disregard for others. And the Greek dictionaries most commonly translate this word as shamelessness. In other words, Jesus is saying, your friend might not care enough to help you because you're his friend. And obviously, this wasn't a very good choice of a friend, but anyways. But he will answer you because there's clearly a, not, a lot of nerve in the request. This is how one commentator puts it, this petitioner has gall. He is willing to go to great lengths and to suffer great rebuke to get the bread 
that he could, so that he could be a good host. It takes nerve to wake up your neighbor and possibly his whole family in the middle of the night. Right, when you get that knock on the door and it's midnight, you're either scared, or if you're not scared, you're annoyed and probably thinking this better be important. And so this parable is about shameless boldness in prayer. That's how God wants us to come to him. And not because he's a bad friend, but it's just the opposite. It's because he's a loving father. God wants us, his creatures, and creatures who he loves, but nonetheless his creatures, to come to him with boldness. The creator of the universe, again, the one who sustains all things by the word of the power, and he invites us to come to him boldly. That's an amazing thing for God to invite us to approach him like that. Ellen and I have uh, a friend who was a donations officer. Basically, uh, he met with people to ask them if they would give money to a nonprofit that he worked for. And he learned with uh, the wealthier people that he met with not to ask for anything less than $10,000. Not to ask for anything less. I have millions of dollars And you take an hour of my time to come and ask for a few thousand? Do you know who I am? Do you know how I can help you? And God invites us to come to him with something of that same mentality, of a fundraiser's mentality. God wants to bless us. And maybe uh, some of you have some timidity and some healthy Uh, uncertainty, fear even, when you pray. Like you're not worthy to enter God's presence, or like he's not going to listen, or he's busy taking care of more important things. Or maybe he's listening, but prayer doesn't actually change God's mind. Or get him to do something he wasn't going to do anyways, right? We all know that feeling. Why pray What difference does it really make? But again, what does verse 8 say? Because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And see, there's a promise here. God will give you what you need if you come to him with bold confidence. And our confidence, again, this is an expression of trust in God's fatherly heart toward us. Because if it's not clear by now, prayer isn't our grasping at a God who doesn't want to be found. Again, it's actually God who has first drawn near to us. The story of Scripture is a story of God dwelling in the midst of his people and doing so preeminently when he comes in the person of Jesus Christ. As John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God came to us first. And he longs for us to now draw near with confidence to him. Confidence in his desire to listen and to bless us. That's the how of prayer. We can pray to God with bold confidence. So the what of prayer, we pray for God's kingdom and for him to sustain us until he returns. The how of prayer, we pray with bold confidence to a loving father 
And then thirdly, the promise of, the, of prayer, the promise. When we pray, what does God promise? And Jesus, or when we pray, God promises to respond in blessing. And Jesus expresses this point so strongly that it's a little unsettling to us. Starting in verse 9, he says, And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, you almost can't say something more simply and more plainly than that. Basically, ask, and I will give it to you. And now it's difficult to read this text and not to think, I'm either completely misunderstanding something, or these words are just patently false. How many prayers have we all prayed that have remained unanswered, at least in terms of our estimation? I have asked, I have knocked, and the door has not been opened. Even recently, Ellen and I have earnestly prayed and had others pray for us for some very particular things that we have desired earnestly, uh, and we did not receive what we had asked for. And we've all faced this sort of heartbreak in prayer, asking for something eagerly and sincerely, and yet not receiving it. So what are we supposed to make of these verses? Well, I think the first thing is to understand that God does not promise to give us whatever we want. God is not a vending machine. He's not a genie in a bottle, just rub the lamp, out pops the genie, and we have our three wishes. James, in his letter, chapter 4, he writes, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. So the truth is we can ask and not receive when our asking has merely to do with our desires and our will and not God's. As we saw, the Lord's prayer is about God's kingdom and strength that we might remain faithful to Him. So God is more than willing to give us what we ask for, but He does want us to ask for those things which are actually good for us. And there are certain things that aren't necessarily good for us that we would want, that we would ask for. For example, wealth. And yet Paul writes in 1 Timothy, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That's why we're told to pray for our daily bread, not for our end-of-the-year bonus or our promotion or whatever it may be, and not that those things are bad. God does give us many good, material, tangible gifts. These things aren't bad, but certain things come with an inherent spiritual danger, one of these being wealth, and so Jesus tells us to pray instead for our daily needs. Also, uh, just another example, Paul prayed three times for the Lord to remove the thorn in his flesh. And yet, we learn that it was given to him, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. 
Paul had this thing afflicting him, and of course he wanted the Lord to remove it, and yet he saw God's good purpose for him in letting it remain. So, if Jesus promises that God will give us what we ask for, then what sort of prayer does he have in mind? And we'll see some light shed on this question in the last few verses. In verses 11 and 12, Jesus basically says, look, if your son asks you for a fish or for bread, you're not going to give him a snake or a scorpion. And then he says in verse 13, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus names the greatest gift conceivable, the gift of the Holy Spirit, and says, ask for it, and it's yours. And not only is it yours, but your heavenly Father is overjoyed to give it to you. So, this gift of the Holy Spirit, what is Jesus talking about? What is this gift about? For those of you who might be wondering, I don't think that Jesus is talking only about the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost. Obviously, that's part of the total picture. The disciples received the Holy Spirit to permanently indwell them for the first time at Pentecost. Jesus went away and he said, I will send you another helper. And he sends his Holy Spirit. And so there's this event, this giving of the Spirit, but I don't think this is just about that. And nor do I think that this promise is strictly referring to conversion. Though, of course, we do know that God will give the Holy Spirit to any and all who turn to Jesus in faith. In fact, it is by the work of the Spirit that people have faith to begin with. John writes in his gospel, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. So to be clear, if you're not a Christian, if you're here today and you don't yet submit to the Lord Jesus, but you desire to turn to God, you desire to know who God is, and you might even want to ask for God's mercy in Christ, to know enough to say, I need that mercy. Well, there is a promise here for you as well, And it is that God will give the Holy Spirit to all who turn to him. That is true. Uh, And if you want to hear more about that, I invite you to come, talk to me afterwards, talk to one of the elders afterwards. God invites all people to know him. But what does this mean for those of us who are already Christians? Don't we already have God's Holy Spirit indwelling us Not in like an ebb and flow way, not in like various percentages, but the whole person of the Holy Spirit with us always. So how can we get any more of the Holy Spirit? What is Jesus talking about? Uh, I believe, uh, and I guess I should say, I'm not alone. (laughs) Commentators believe that this promise of the Holy Spirit is about the active presence and power of God in our lives. One commentator writes, since the prayer comes from a disciple, right, to the Heavenly Father, since the prayer comes from a disciple, the request is for God's presence, guidance, and intimacy. 
And throughout Scripture, this is actually what we see with regard to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit in Scripture consistently represents the actual presence and power of God. And this is true both in creation. You see the Spirit of God hovering over the face of the deep. But this is also true in recreation, in salvation. Jesus says in John 3 that we must be born again if we're, enter, if we're to enter into the kingdom of God. And he says that we are born again uh, or that we must be born of the Spirit in verse 8. John 3, verse 8. The Father purposes new life for his people. The Son makes provision for that new life in his death and resurrection. And yet it is the Spirit who actually instills that new life in us, who actually enlivens us and empowers us then to live for God. And we saw last week that Samson had supernatural strength when the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, the text says. And in a similar way today, every Christian is given certain spiritual gifts which are empowered by the Spirit. And so the promise, ask and it will be given to you, we need to recognize where it falls in this text. Luke places it after the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer. That's the ask. And then he tells at the end of this teaching on prayer, he says, God promises to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So this, this kind of helps us see what, what it means for God to promise, promise to ask us uh, to give whatever we ask. Uh, he promises to empower us for ministry. God doesn't promise to make our lives comfortable. God doesn't promise to give us all of the things we might ask for, all of our wants or needs or desires. And I should say that doesn't mean that God doesn't want us to also pray for those things. Again, following prayer or following Paul uh, and just the example of the church, it is okay to make all sorts of requests of God. In many ways, God does want to alleviate the hardships and troubles of this life. But Jesus is talking about the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the gift of God himself. And that's really what this whole text is about. God is a loving Father who invites us to know Him, to come near, to draw near to Him. He is the one who adopts us and makes us His children. And the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, basically, pray for my return and pray that you might have my help, my presence with you, that you might be faithful. And he says, God will give that to you. God will give his very own spirit to you, who in Romans 8 is also called the spirit of Christ. See, God doesn't want to give us what is not actually good for us. God means ultimately to give us himself. So what does this actually look like to pray for the Holy Spirit? Well, we pray uh, for God's Spirit uh, when we struggle in all sorts of manner in the Christian life. Uh, recently, uh, this was, I guess, before I, I left for uh, RTS about a month ago, uh, I was facing sort of my own row of discouragement, just heavy days, long days, um, 
just being discouraged about how much I had to work, about how much was on my plate, um, and just wondering, is this, Lord, is this what I'm supposed to be doing, uh, putting this many hours towards gutters, and I want to be, <laughs> I want to be studying more, and um, in all sorts of ways, I was just down. I was heavy, and uh, I prayed for God's Spirit to help me, uh, and it wasn't some sort of mind trick or mantra that I walked myself through. Austin, you have it better than so many. You don't have debt. You know, lift your head up. Life is good. It wasn't any of that. I was just, I had an unexplainable heaviness, and I asked God, God, remove this from me. And God answers those sorts of prayer. Lord, give me peace. Help me to trust in you. Sorry, my pump is beeping at me. I apologize. Uh, God answers us. He, he will be there when we call upon him. Uh, and we pray for God's spirit in terms of what he asks us to do in loving our neighbors and witnessing to who Christ is. Um, and I'm sure many of you have had that experience where you sense in this encounter with this person, I'm talking with them, but I almost feel like I'm listening to myself or watching them. We can ask God, Lord, help me, you know, give me opportunity, and then help me speak. And if you pray that prayer, you might just be surprised that opportunities arise. And you'll need to continue then to pray that God would give you the boldness to take advantage of those. At a most basic level, again, we need God's Spirit if we're going to remain faithful until Christ returns. And Jesus says here that when we boldly cry out to the Heavenly Father, He promises to give us His Spirit. That's the third point. When we pray, God promises to give us His Holy Spirit. This is the chief blessing of God. And again, this brings things full circle. The gift of the Spirit is in many ways the answer to the Lord's Prayer. In the beginning, we're taught to our pray to the Heavenly Father. And at the end, we're told that the Heavenly Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. Brothers and sisters, Jesus will one day come again. He will one day return. Until that day, our life with God, we depend on a prayer on crying out to a God that we cannot see. But Jesus encourages us and he calls us to trust in him, that he will answer, that he himself, by his spirit, will show up to be present with us. Let's pray.